wonderful to have uh, a full house on Labor Day weekend. How many of you thought it would be just you and your family? (laughs) I confess, I thought maybe also that we would have a smaller than a larger congregation, and praise God, we have a full house, and our air conditioning is working at warp speed, (laughs) even though you think not. (laughs) So go ahead and fan yourselves through the message. I will not be offended. Because of our congregational meeting and because we went overtime, I'll do an abbreviated message this morning, but I want to I want to center in, as we do the Lord's Supper every uh, first Sunday of the month, as is our regular practice, a message about sin, forgiveness, and repentance. Sin, forgiveness, and repentance. What an opportune time as we celebrate the Lord's Supper to talk about how do we deal with sin How do we experience forgiveness and how do we show our repentance? Those are some of the basic areas of the Christian life and we want to be able to do that this morning in and through our celebration of the Lord's Supper. So I'll make some comments as we're receiving the elements. It'll be sort of an extension of the message as we work our way through it and especially because I have very little time in which to do it. So... You pray for me that I will uh, figure out in my head what not to say this morning. (laughs) I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul begins an inspired letter by talking about his love and his commitment and his being convinced about the spirituality of the Corinthians. Notice what he says in verse 2 of chapter 1. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Verse 4 I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship, the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's an amazing commendation, isn't it? And you say, could this actually be the Corinthians that he's referring to? All of the rest of 1 Corinthians and even into 2 Corinthians, there's a fair question about some of these attributes. Called to be saints together, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, you're enriched in Him, you're not lacking spiritual gifts, you're waiting for the revealing of Christ, the the second coming, you want to be guiltless before Him. 
You were called in the fellowship of his son. I mean, these are, these are amazing attributes that describe what we might call a very motley crew. They, they are, as you read 1 Corinthians and go into 2 Corinthians, a group for which I'm not sure, unless, of course, I was there like Paul to see it, whether or not these folks were really to be described in these ways. I mean, they had lawsuits with one another. They had the kind of issues, even in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, where they were not waiting for one another. They had issues of their spiritual maturity and what they were doing with their freedom in Christ. They were abusing such freedom. You had a particular situation for which Paul was saying in an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, that they ought to be exhibiting love instead of being a clanging symbol or a gong that, that wasn't loving no matter what great works you were doing, no matter what spiritual gifts you might be exhibiting in the fellowship. There were even some who apparently were questioning the validity of a resurrection from the dead, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And then you go into 2 Corinthians and you find that there are even more problems. And so his description of them is, is quite interesting. I mean, he's convinced, if not about all of them, at least about most of them, if not some of them, that they were indeed these kinds of people, true Christians, Genuine lovers of the Lord, and yet for whom he begins right here in the first chapter, after what I just read to you, some warnings. Look at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So right after he gives all of these great and grandiose attributes about who the Corinthians are, he begins to say to them, I've got some grave concerns. And the first is this, Chloe and his people, probably one of the house churches there in Corinth, they're telling me that there are divisions among you. And he goes on to describe it. Now, what was the basis behind some of these divisions? Well, I think it was twofold. Number one, if you read 1st and 2nd Corinthians together, and you have to do a bit of reconstruction, because apparently there were a couple of non-inspired Pauline letters that were sent to them by either Timothy or Titus. In fact, many, many good, solid scholars believe that there were probably four pieces of correspondence that went to the Corinthians, two inspired and two not inspired by the Holy Spirit, which were more instructive by Paul, but probably in the great warning sense. So our 1 Corinthians is probably 2 Corinthians. And then there is what Paul alludes to as the severe letter. That's in the middle between our 1st and 2nd. And then 2nd then becomes the 4th. And Paul does not save any ink when he's telling them about all of these issues. And apparently, because he speaks about this issue of divisions first, it's probably top of the list. Probably top of the list. And what's going on? 
Well, you can tell in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, that there were people who were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas or Peter, I'm of Paul, and the really spiritual say, no, I'm of Jesus. And so there were divisions, but I think it even goes more deeply than that. What I think is happening here in 1 Corinthians, especially if you add 2 Corinthians, particularly as you move toward the latter part of 2 Corinthians, you find underneath the surface, as Paul is beginning to speak about some leaders in the fellowship, who he actually dubs in 2 Corinthians, super apostles. Super apostles. In other words, the Corinthian correspondence underneath all of the surface of what he's saying is Paul contending for his own apostleship in the context of those who are trying to to convince the Corinthians that Paul's really not an apostle from Christ at all. And that they are actually the true apostles. And Paul is constantly, especially in 2 Corinthians, defending his apostolicity, his apostleship. And he has to, even though it pains him to do it, he has to defend himself against all their diatribes against him. He doesn't like to do that. He only wants to talk about Christ. But they are in an all-out, relentless assault on Paul, Paul the Apostle, the one who was truly called by Christ, the one who was called by Christ on that Damascus road, he has to continue to defend himself, even though he's terribly unnerved by it, because he sees what these super apostles are doing in the fellowship, and they're beginning to turn people toward themselves. You know, even warned the Ephesian elders there on the island of Miletus, according to Acts 20, I tell you this, there are going to be some ravenous wolves and they're going to come in from the outside and they're not going to want to spare the flock and they've got their own deeds and they've got their own morality and they are not in it for the cause and sake of Jesus Christ. They're in it for their own self-aggrandizement. They're probably in it for the money. They may even be in it and so most of them are for sexual favors and I warn you about them. And then he says, In Acts chapter 20, and there are even some from among your own selves who will rise up and you will attempt to to draw away disciples after you. So either the pressure from the outside in or the pressure from the inside out, there's a lot going on. And Paul is warning the Ephesian elders for that church in Ephesus, and he's warning the Corinthians here in Corinth that you be ever ready on the lookout for those who will want to displace me as your spiritual father and who will want to ransack the place for whatever they can get. It may even be, my friends, that because of their super apostleship, what they claim about themselves, that they also brought a kind of morality with them and a kind of morality that was not even known among even some of the Gentiles. Or at least when they saw such sexual sin happen in the church, they were either not dealing with it as they should or they perhaps were even condoning it. Condoning it in this sense. Well, doesn't Paul teach And Paul has to defend himself in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and following. 
I'm not telling you that since grace superabounds in the Christian church, that you ought to sin up a storm because the more sin there is, the more grace abounds. He says, Romans chapter 6, may it never be. May that never be. You can't sin up a storm and believe that because grace abounds over all sin, you can just sin and sin and sin because you're exalting the grace of God. That's what theologians call antinomianism, antinomia. It's the idea of an attitude against the law of God, against obedience. You see, there's no premium in the Christian life for someone to say, well, I'm a Christian, but it really doesn't matter the way I live. Not so. God's grace is free, but it doesn't give me a license to sin and be wanton in that, that kind of lifestyle. And apparently, Paul discovered such a thing. You say, how so? Look at chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported, verse 1, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. What kind of sin, Paul? For a man has his father's wife. He was having some kind of illicit relationship with his stepmother. That's why it says father's wife instead of his mother. That would have been incest. This is actually even a most gross kind. This is actually something that Paul says even the pagans don't involve themselves in such a practice. This is bad. And notice his next phrase, verse 2. And you are arrogant. You see, somehow, this man who was sinning in this way and the Corinthians for not dealing with it were assuming somehow in some weird, twisted kind of theology that they could do such a thing in the bounds of the fellowship of the church and that somehow maybe grace would superabound and maybe that's tied to these super apostles. And maybe that's what they're doing. They're trying to turn on its head everything that Paul has attempted to teach these Corinthian believers about living the Christian life. He goes on. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this, this, this man, this one, be removed from among you. See, there, there is no premium on a kind of a antinomian lifestyle where obedience doesn't matter, where I can just sin and God's grace abounds and it doesn't matter the way we live. He says, no, it matters to even the point of removing this man from among you. Verse three, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one. I want you to circle that in your Bibles, on the one. The one who did such a thing. That's going to come repeatedly back to us. It's going to tie First and Second Corinthians together, I believe. Verse 4, when you are assembled, now here's his public teaching. When you are assembled, here's what you need to do. You're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man, this such a one that he's referred to, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does that mean? mean? Well, it's something like this, very practically speaking. There's a man in sin. He's having an illicit relationship and you're not doing anything about it. And particularly, not just the congregation, but the leaders, because maybe in a way, in a certain way, they might be in on it. 
And Paul sees major danger happening that threatens the very life of the Corinthian congregation. And so here's what he says. You have to put this man out of the fellowship. And the reason you do is so that when he goes out into the world and the Holy Spirit restraints are off of him because he's not in the fellowship, he may see the error of his ways and he may see the sin of his life and actions to the point where he says, it's a cold, cruel world out here. And maybe what I've been taught, maybe what has been allowed in the fellowship and what I've done is what I ought not to do. And it's for the purpose of seeing his soul saved that he'd be saved in the day of the Lord. And then he goes right back to the Corinthians and possibly even the leaders especially. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Somehow they were arrogant about it and they actually in a sense somehow, unbelievably to you and me, they boasted about it. Maybe that's where this comes in. Uh, The grace of God is to be exalted. Uh, No sin is too high for God's grace to cover. You see how it could be twisted like that? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He he likens the body to a, a lump of dough and kneading within that lump of dough, somebody's placed leaven. Now leaven's not always seen as particularly evil, but sometimes leaven is used by Paul and other Bible writers as a metaphor for evil. And he says, here's what's happening. You allow this conduct to go on. You allow this sin to perpetrate itself in the church. And it's like a little leaven that leavens the whole lump of dough. Verse 7, here's the command. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. In other words, you're working on holiness as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's, He's given his life for you. Not to to be wantonly in sin or to be arrogant and boasting about someone who's in sin like this. Christ died to prevent you from these actions. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, like the sexual sin here, but with the unleavened bread of what? Sincerity and truth. He says in verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Like, like this one that, that we're referring to. And he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, you need to be a light to them, right? You go out in the world from the church and there are going to be all kinds of opportunities for you to be a light for those who are greedy and swindlers and sexually immoral. I'm not telling you to go, to go out of the world because that's where they live. I'm telling you to go to them. But when we're talking about the church, when we're talking about the body of Christ, when we're talking about the fellowship of those who proclaim Jesus as Lord of their lives, that's not where greedy, swindler, homosexual, sexual idolaters, whatever the category, whatever the sin, we're not into malice and evil, we're into sincerity and truth. And so I taught you that this is the way you need to deal with it. And then he says in verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone, notice this, who bears the name of brother. He doesn't know if he's a true brother. He bears the name of brother in the fellowship, brother and sister in Christ. But maybe there's a fair question about whether or not this man and his immorality is actually 
defining him as someone who's never been in Christ. Some of your translations may say a so-called brother. Now remember, he said, we've got to put him out so that a process happens, that he sees this cold, cruel world that he's now in with the Holy Spirit completely unrestrained in his life. And then he says, I've got to get back to the fellowship. I've got to deal with my sin. I can't do this anymore. It's wrong. And that's why Paul says, if he bears the name of brother... If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with, and there's that phrase again, such a one. Such a one. You know, the idea of eating in the first century was this blessed table fellowship. It, it meant not just a meal, it meant what the meal was actually meaning for us, and that is our fellowship with one another our relationship with one another. And he's saying, this is, a, this is a so-called brother. He's bearing the name of brother, but you're arrogant by sitting down in table fellowship with him and you know what he's doing in this sin and you are not confronting him. You're not lovingly coming alongside him and perhaps you're even twisted enough to say, oh, God's grace will cover it all. He says, no. Into verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Now I know someone might easily say, that seems so unloving. That's so harsh. Purge the man from among you? Not even to eat with such a one? Yes, there's a punitive nature to the idea of dealing with some sin, and particularly this sin, and particularly the, the ongoing habituated sin of sexual immorality, no doubt, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Now, with that as a background, and Paul even says in chapter 6, verse 18, by way of command, flee from sexual immorality. I mean, it's a command. So he's trying to get the Corinthians to realize that the true grace of God means that we are motivated to obedience, not away from it. Now let's perhaps assume that there's a possibility, given all that I've said already about this hideous thing called sin, that the man has been turned over for the destruction of his flesh, he has seen the light, he has confessed, and now he wants to seek forgiveness. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is most interesting to me. We don't know with 100% certainty, but I think on the basis of real good exegesis of the biblical texts and the history of these passages and some really, really fine commentators who take this view as I do, perhaps this man, the such a one fellow of 1 Corinthians 5, is the one being referenced here in 2 Corinthians 2. Listen to Paul. Chapter 2, verse 1, 2 Corinthians, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. He's still working with them. He's still in his apostleship trying to shepherd them, trying to warn them, trying to take care of them. Verse 2, For if I cause you pain, which he apparently did with the severe letter in between first and second, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? What he means is, look, I sent you that severe letter, 
I want it to work. I want it to be effective. I've sent Timothy to you. I've sent Titus to you. And I want these, these brethren of mine to speak to you personally. I've got other duties where I am and I'm writing you. And if my pain, if the severe letter has caused you, especially this man and these super apostles who are trying to, to assert their authority, if it's causing them pain, good. Good. So that they can see the serious error of all of this. And wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. That's you, Corinthians. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all, that you would do the right thing. I want this man to, to repent. I've delivered him as an apostle to Satan himself for his destruction so that he would see the error of his ways. His sin would be forgiven because he saw such an error and he cried out to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. And now I'm asking you as a congregation to actually receive him back into the fellowship because he sought forgiveness from you all. Ah, we can center in, can't we, in uh, a lot of ways on sin that needs to be dealt with. We're pretty good at that, aren't we? Oh, wow, this brother, he's in deep sin. We need, we need to deal with him. In fact, let's do the injunction of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. Let's just boot him out. I mean, look, he's, he's not doing the right thing. I mean, we, we can be so righteously justified to say, this brother, he's not acting like we are. And maybe we're not going to see what the super apostles are trying to do to subvert our minds to, to make us be arrogant and boasting almost of this man's sin. No, we need to deal with it. But you know, that's the easiest and quickest way at times just to say, done with you. Just, just knock the dust off your feet. Send him on his way. And what do you do when he comes back? What do you do when he says, please forgive me? Chapter 2, verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Oh, I love you so much, Corinthians. Now we get back to how he was commending them in chapter 1, right? I love you. I believe you're in Christ. I want you to see the truth. And he says in verse 5, Now, if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. What does that mean? Well, what this man actually did, once you figured out that you can't be boastful about it, you can't be arrogant about it, and you're going to do what I tell you about dealing with that sin, and you did it, you were so pained at the reality of seeing the sin for what it really was, as I pointed it out to you in 1 Corinthians 5, that now you have been pained because one among you has committed such a sin and you now realize it, you're coming to grips with it, that it is a kind of serious sin that even the pagans don't do and you're starting to come to yourself now. You're starting to realize the severity of it all, the pain of it all, the ugliness of it all and it hits you right in the gut. Your heart is broken. He says in verse 6, For such a one, there it is, for such a one, could very well tie us back to 1 Corinthians 5, this punishment by the majority is enough. In other words, the congregation is the majority. 
And when they finally figured out what Paul was doing, and they owned it, and they dealt with him, and they obeyed 1 Corinthians 5, and they put him out of the fellowship, they didn't eat table fellowship with him, and they told him, you've got to go. And that painful act of the majority is now causing them to say, we don't want to have anything more to do with him. And Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 2, he's sought your forgiveness. You must forgive him. You must believe that it's real. You must believe that he is sincerely seeking the forgiveness of the majority. And that's why he says in verse 7, So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. It's hard to be out there. I've had experiences as a pastor of other churches of seeing someone go that route by biblical mandate and have them come back and say, that is painful. I want to repent. I want to seek forgiveness. I want to be received back into the fellowship. The the pain of the majority as inflicted by the congregation upon my life was so severe that you could actually assume that what's happening here is that he did in fact become delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul may be saved. And he's coming back and saying, I want my soul to be saved. I want my soul to be saved. And Paul is saying, what you've done is that you didn't deal with him in the first place and now you've gone to the complete opposite pole and you're refusing to forgive. He's saying that can't happen and that can't happen. You've got to forgive him. So that he's not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Do you see the keys of the kingdom that the church has? To see someone for whom righteously they ought to be judged. And to see someone who being judged confesses and says he desires to forsake. And that you ought now to forgive. So, Paul says, I'm going to... I'm going to tell you once again, verse 8, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you. This is a test for the Corinthians. And know whether you're obedient in everything. What, What kind of obedience, Paul? Forgiveness right here. This context, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Oh, Satan, if he could, he gets us coming and going. Deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Yeah, he's mine. And then God, being more powerful than Satan, sees a brother who's out in the world like this, and God plucks him back from this destructive idea, and he puts him in the fellowship where he receives love and affirmation and forgiveness. And now the Corinthians are not there to give it. They're they're holding him at arm's length. They're saying, I don't know. I don't think we should forgive him. What does the majority think? No, no. And Paul says, I'm testing you. I'm testing your life. I'm testing your resolve. I'm testing your forgiveness quotient. And might we say in a phrase that might explain the wider picture here, 
wait a minute. Haven't you been forgiven? How could you stand aloof from a brother who is seeking your forgiveness when you yourself have been forgiven so much? You think you're beyond forgiving this brother? Maybe there's a lot of self-righteousness going on here. Now, I know someone might easily say and almost immediately respond, but how do we know he's sincere? And furthermore, even if we receive him back into the fellowship, how do we know that we're sincere? I mean, it's easy for me to say, oh, brother, come back into the fellowship. It looks like all the earmarks of true repentance, true confession, come back into the fellowship. Oh, but by the way, for me... I probably won't have anything to do with you. Because that's an ugly sin. Maybe they're also dealing with a lack of forgiveness in their hearts because they need to repent of some things. And then you go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul hears a report about how they responded. I think particularly... Underneath the surface of these super apostles and what they're doing to to kill and destroy. And then this particular man that they're trying to use. Here's what he says. He says, I've found out from the correspondence and the communication I've received that you have indeed repented as a congregation. And you have indeed received him. Notice what he says. Verse 6. But God, 2 Corinthians 7, who confronts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Here's what Titus has reported about you. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. You comforted Titus, my emissary, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced. Still more. I mean, Titus comes back to Paul and he says, they got it. They understood. They understood the sin of this man. They understood that they were blowing it by allowing it and boasting about it. And then they received him, maybe aloof for a while. Titus comes. Paul writes. It's a severe letter. They get it. They understand it. And they say, we need to repent just like this man repented. And so... Your mourning about such sin, your zeal for me as your shepherd, I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, that severe letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Oh man, this is the life of the church. This is it. This is the time where one of our prodigals have come home. He's come home. And what do you do? You throw a party. You kill the fatted calf. You raise all the balloons and you say, he's repentant. He's come home. And I too, like the elder brother in the prodigal son story, I repent of my self-righteous attitude when I was standing aloof from such a one, or maybe even when I boasted in the sin because I thought grace was what it was not according to Paul's teaching. 
And then he, he doesn't stop there. He describes their repentance. He says, verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief or worldly sorrow produces death. What does he mean? There's a difference between biblical repentance and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is often the kind of sorrow that I'm so mad that I got caught. That's worldly sorrow. But biblical repentance is this. Verse 11, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, Corinthians, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, clear yourselves of your wrongdoing before. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. You went through it all and you realized it and you repented of it all. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter Why do I think this is tied back to the man of 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2? Look at verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one. Remember that such a one? The one who did the wrong. Not for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness, your earnestness to repent for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. You know what he's saying? I prove my apostleship. By telling you the right theology. I tell you the right stuff. I lead you the right way. These super apostles who think they have your ear, they don't do stuff like this. They don't talk about the earnestness of repentance. They talk about stuff like this. Well, I mean, it's a bad thing, so get him out. Or let him stay in because, look, we're all sinners. I mean, we all do the wrong things. Look, I got I to gotta figure out how to deal with my own life. I, I can't be going around fixing everybody else. I, I got to deal with my own life. And they come up with all kinds of spurious reasons. And then they throw in the idea, oh, and by the way, do you think Paul's really leading you in the right way? Do you think he's truly an apostle? He's certainly not like us. We let you do at times what you want to do. We're not this uh, ogre. In fact, they even say about Paul and the Corinthian correspondence, well, the contemptuousness of his speech, and by the way, he's this little old crotchety man. Doesn't speak that well. Doesn't look that good. Can you really trust him? And the back part of 2 Corinthians, chapters 10 through 13, all he's doing is saying, they claim they're super apostles, and I may be this little pipsqueak of a guy, But I tell you this, what I tell you is the truth of God in Christ. I'm not lying. And here's the way in the dealing with sin, put him out, let God deal with him so that if he repents, he comes back, seeks your forgiveness, you forgive him, and you show by your repentance that you really love him and you prove what the biblical gospel really is. That's how you prove it. My friends, this is, this is the life of the church. That's why, as we talked in the congregational meeting, this is, this is where we are when leaders lead. This is, this is how elders shepherd. This is how we work with the flock. Now, these are extreme examples, I'll grant you, but these are the kinds of examples in which, if you're not prayed up, if you're not biblically informed, If you're not following the apostolic message, you can have people who come in this church even touting themselves as fellow leaders 
who will steer you the wrong way. And we pray that God will protect us from those who want to rise up from within to draw away the disciples after them. That's why we need to know doctrine. That's why we need to know truth. That's why we need to study as elders as much as we can so that we can see ourselves approved unto God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. You say, well, but this is just your Bible. I don't see any notes in there. Where did you get all this stuff? Here's my answer. Because this is so important for us. So important for me to correctly assess what's going on in any book of the Bible so as to preach it effectively to you. I study my guts out. And I put it in my heart to the degree that it's there and it can't be dislodged by any super apostle. Because that's how much I care about you. That's how much I love you. I would give my life for you. Because this apostolic gospel, this this Pauline teaching, is our very life. Isn't it? And this is is why the the elders and and future deacons as, as ministers, as servants and leaders in the church, that's why we work round the clock. That's why we study hard. That's why we want to be mature, godly men, so that if somebody comes in the flock who comes from the outside, who's a ravenous wolf, we'll know them in 10 seconds. We know what they teach. That's why we don't, that's why we don't promote anybody. That's why we don't have anybody just stand up in this pulpit without a thorough and convincing evaluation. And that's why when these young men come and say, "Uh, I aspire to the ministry, that's why we see them get the kind of training that they need. That's why we pray ourselves silly so that we can determine who from among us ought to be serving in leadership roles. This This is very serious business. And it's most serious when Satan is doing everything he can to make sure that this kind of message isn't preached. And that's why, as we celebrate now the Lord's Supper, We can delight in dealing with sin as we ought, in receiving forgiveness when we desire, and repenting of our attitudes so that we manifest a godly, holy community that people long to be a part of. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we are seeing sin and forgiveness and repentance in a whole new way. And thank you for the picture that Paul has painted for us here. We believe, compellingly so, of a man who needed to deal with his sin, who seems to be the same man who sought forgiveness from such a sin, and who sought to repent in a congregation of repenters. And that's the kind of congregation we want to be. And may we examine ourselves, even as we celebrate the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name, amen.